Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we return to Chapter 6 of The House of a Thousand Candles, The Girl and the Canoe. Mr. Glenarm was very fond of the fruit. I had never seen a persimmon before, but I was in a mood for experiment. The frost-broken rind was certainly forbidding, but the rich pulp brought a surprise of joy to my palate. Bates watched me with respectful satisfaction. His gravity was in no degree diminished by the presence of a neat strip of flesh-colored court plaster over his right eye. A faint suggestion of arnica hung in the air. "'This is a quiet life,' I remarked, wishing to give him an opportunity to explain his encounter of the morning. "'You are quite right, sir. As your grandfather used to say, it's a place of peace. When nobody shoots at you through a window,' I suggested." "'Such a thing is likely to happen to any gentleman,' he replied. "'But not likely to happen more than once, if you'll allow the philosophy.' He did not refer to his encounter with the caretaker, and I resolved to keep my knowledge of it to myself. I always prefer to let a rascal hang himself, and here was a case, I reasoned, where, if Bates were disloyal to the duties Pickering had imposed upon him, the fact of this perfidy was bound to disclose itself eventually.' Glancing around at him when he was off guard, I surprised a look of utter dejection upon his face as he stood with folded arms behind my chair. He flushed, and then started, and then put his hand to his forehead. Uh, "'I met with a slight accident this morning, sir. The hickory's very tough. A piece of wood flew up and struck me.' "'Ah, too bad,' I said, with sympathy. "'You'd better rest a bit this afternoon.' "'Thank you, sir, but it's a small matter.' "'Only you might think it a trifle disfiguring.' "'He struck a match for my cigarette, "'and I left without looking at him again. "'But as I crossed the threshold of the library, "'I formulated this note. "'Bates is a liar, for one thing, "'and a person with active enemies for another. "'Watch him.' "'All things considered, the day was passing well enough. "'I picked up a book and threw myself on a comfortable divan "'to smoke and reflect before continuing my explorations.' As I lay there, Bates brought me a telegram. I replied to my message to Pickering. It read, "'Yours announcing arrival received and filed.'" It was certainly a queer business, my errand to Glenarm. I lay for a couple of hours dreaming, and counted the candles in the great crystal chandelier until my eyes ached. Then I rose, took my cap, and was soon tramping off toward the lake. There were several small boats and a naphtha launch in the boathouse. I dropped a canoe into the water and paddled off toward the summer colony, whose gables and chimneys were plainly visible from the Glenarm shore. I landed and roamed idly over leaf-strewn walks past nearly a hundred cottages, to whose windows and verandas the winter blinds gave a dreary and inhospitable air. There was, at one point, a casino, whose broad veranda hung over the edge of the lake, while beneath, on the waterside, was a boathouse. I had from this point a fine view of the lake, and I took advantage of it to fix in my mind the topography of the region. I could see the bold outlines of Glenarm House and its red-tiled roofs, and the gray tower of the little chapel beyond the wall rose above the wood with a placid dignity. Above the trees everywhere hung the shadowy smoke of autumn. I walked back to the wharf where I had left my canoe, and was about to step into it when I saw— "'rocking at a similar landing-place nearby, "'another slight craft of the same type as my own, "'but painted dark maroon. 
I was sure the canoe had not been there when I landed. Possibly it belonged to Morgan, the caretaker. I walked over and examined it. I even lifted it slightly in the water to test its weight. The paddle lay on the dock beside me, and it, too, I weighed, critically, deciding that it was a trifle light for my own taste. "'Please, if you don't mind.' I hurried to stand face to face with the girl in the red tam-o'-shanter. "'I beg your pardon,' I said, stepping away from the canoe. She did not wear the covert coat of the morning, but a red-knit jacket, buttoned tight about her. She was young, with every emphasis of youth. A pair of dark blue eyes examined me with good-humored curiosity. She was on good terms with the sun. I rejoiced in the brown of her cheeks, so eloquent of companionship with the outdoor world. A certificate, indeed, of the favor of heaven. Show me, in October, a girl with a face of tan, whose hands have plied a paddle or driven a golf ball or cast a fly beneath the blue arches of summer, and I will suffer her scorn and joy. She may vote me dull and refute my wisest word with laughter, for hers are the privileges of the sisterhood of Diana, and that soft bronze, those daring fugitive freckles beneath her eyes, linker to times when Pan whistled upon his reed, and all the days were long. She had approached silently and was enjoying, I felt sure, my discomfiture at being taken unawares. I had snatched off my cap and stood waiting beside the canoe, feeling, I must admit, a trifle guilty at being caught in the unwarrantable inspection of another person's property, particularly a person so wholly pleasing to the eye. Really, if you don't need that paddle any more— I looked down and found to my annoyance that I held it in my hand. I was in fact leaning upon it with a cool air of proprietorship. Again, I beg your pardon, I said. I hadn't expected. She eyed me calmly with the stare of a child that arrives at a drawing-room door by mistake and scrutinizes the guests without awe. I didn't know what I had expected or had not expected, and she manifested no intention of helping me to explain. Her short skirt suggested fifteen or sixteen, not more, and such being the case there was no reason why I should not be master of the situation. As I fumbled my pipe, the hot coals of tobacco burned my hand, and I cast my pipe away from me. She laughed a little and watched the pipe bound from the dock into the water. "'Too bad,' she said, her eyes upon it. "'But if you hurry, you may get it before it floats away.' "'Thank you for the suggestion.' I said, but I did not relish the idea of kneeling on the dock to fish for a pipe before a strange schoolgirl who was, I felt sure, anxious to laugh at me. She took a step toward the line by which her boat was fastened. Uh, allow me. If you think you can, safely, she said, and the laughter that lurked in her eyes annoyed me. The feminine knot is designed for the confusion of man, I observed, twitching vainly at the rope which was tied securely in unfamiliar loops. She was singularly unresponsive. The thought that she was probably laughing at my clumsiness did not make my fingers more nimble. The nautical instructor at St. Agatha's is undoubtedly a woman. This knot must come in the postgraduate course. But my gallantry is equal, I trust, to your patience. The maid in the red tam-o'-shanter continued silent. The wet rope was obdurate, the knot more and more hopeless and my efforts to make light of the situation awakened no response in the girl. I tugged away at the rope, attacking its tangle on various theories. A case for surgery, I'm afraid. A truly Gordian knot. 
"'But I haven't my knife.' "'Oh, but you wouldn't,' she exclaimed. "'I think I can manage.' She bent down. I was aware that the sleeve of her jacket brushed my shoulder. Seized an end that I had ignored, gave it a sharp tug with a slim brown hand, and pulled the knot free. "'There,' she exclaimed with a little laugh. "'I might have saved you all the bother.' "'How dull of me! "'But I didn't have the combination,' I said, "'steadying the canoe carefully "'to mitigate the ignominy of my failure. "'She scorned the hand I extended, "'but embarked with a light, confident step "'and took the paddle. "'It was growing late. "'The shadows in the wood were deepening, "'a chill crept over the water, "'and beyond the tower of the chapel "'the sky was bright with the splendor of sunset. "'With a few skillful strokes "'she brought her little craft beside my pipe, "'picked it up, and tossed it onto the wharf. "'Perhaps you can pipe a tune upon it,' she said, "'dipping the paddle tentatively. "'You put me under great obligations,' I declared. "'Are all the girls at St. Agatha's as amiable?' "'I should say not. I'm a great exception. "'And I really shouldn't be talking to you at all. "'It's against the rules. "'And we don't encourage smoking.' "'The chaplain doesn't smoke, I suppose?' "'Not in chapel. I believe it isn't done, and we rarely see him anywhere else.' She had idled with the paddle so far, but now lifted her eyes and drew back the blade for a long stroke. "'But in the wood, this morning. By the wall.' I hate myself to this day for having so startled her. The poised blade dropped into the water with a splash. She brought the canoe a trifle nearer to the wharf with an almost imperceptible stroke and turned toward me with wonder and dismay in her eyes. "'So you are an eavesdropper and detective, are you? I beg that you will give your master my compliments. I really owe you an apology. I thought you were a gentleman,' she exclaimed with a withering emphasis, and dipped her blade deep in flight. I called, stammering incoherently, after her, but her light argosy skimmed the water steadily. The paddle rose and fell with trained precision, making scarcely a ripple as she stole softly away toward the fairy towers of the sunset. I stood looking after her, goaded with self-contempt. A glory of yellow and red filled the west. Suddenly the wind moaned in the wood behind the line of cottages and swept over me and rippled the surface of the lake. I watched its flight until it caught her canoe, and I marked the flimsy craft's quick response. "'as the shaken waters bore her alert figure upward on the swell, "'her blade still maintaining its regular dip, "'until she disappeared behind a little peninsula "'that made a harbor near the school grounds. "'The red tam shatter seemed at last to merge in the red sky, "'and I turned to my canoe and paddled cheerlessly home. "'We'll return to Chapter 7, right after this sponsor message. "'And now, back to our story.' Chapter 7 The Man on the Wall I was so thoroughly angry with myself that after idling along the shores for an hour I lost my way in the dark wood when I landed and brought up at the rear door used by Bates for communication with the villagers who supplied us with provender. I readily found my way to the kitchen and to a flight of stairs beyond, which connected the first and second floors. The house was dark, and my good spirits were not increased as I stumbled up an unfamiliar way in the dark, with, I fear, a maldiction upon my grandfather, who had built and left incomplete a house so utterly preposterous, 
My unpardonable fling at the girl still rankled me, and I was cold from the quick descent of the night chill on the water and anxious to get into more comfortable clothes. Once in the second floor, I felt that I knew the way to my room, and I was feeling my way toward it over the rough floor when I heard low voices rising apparently from my sitting room. It was pitch dark in the hall. I stopped short and listened. The door of my room was open, and a faint light flashed once into the hall and disappeared. I heard now a sound as of a hammer tapping upon woodwork. Then it seized, and a voice whispered, "'He'll kill me if he finds me here. I'll try again tomorrow. I swear to God I'll help you. But no more now.' Then the sound of a scuffle, and again the tapping of the hammer. After several minutes more of this, there was a whispered dialogue which I could not hear. Whatever was occurring, two or three points struck me on the instant. One of the conspirators was an unwilling party to an act as yet unknown. Second, they had been unsuccessful and must wait for another opportunity. And third, the business, whatever it was, was clearly of some importance to myself, as my own apartments in my grandfather's strange house had been chosen for the investigation. Clearly I was not prepared to close the incident, but the idea of frightening my visitors appealed to my sense of humor. I tiptoed to the front stairway, ran lightly down, found the front door, and from the inside opened and slammed it. I heard instantly a hurried scamper above, and the heavy fall of one who had stumbled in the dark. I grinned with real pleasure at the sound of this mishap, hurried into the great library, which was dark as a well, and opening one of the long windows, stepped out on the balcony. At once from the rear of the house came the sound of a stealthy step, which increased to a run at the ravine bridge. I listened to the flight of the fugitive through the wood until the sounds died away toward the lake. Then, turning toward the library windows, I saw Bates, with a candle held above his head, peering about. "'Hello, Bates,' I called cheerfully. "'I just got home and stepped out to see if the moon had risen. I don't believe I know where to look for it in this country.' He began lighting the tapers with his usual deliberation. "'It's a trifle early, I think, sir. About seven o'clock, I should say, was the hour, Mr. Glenarm.' There was, of course, no doubt whatever that Bates had been one of the men I'd heard in my room. It was wholly possible that he had been compelled to assist in some lawless act against his will. But why, if he had been forced into aiding a criminal, should he not invoke my own aid to protect himself?' I kicked the logs in the fireplace impatiently in my uncertainty. The man slowly lighted the many candles in the great apartment. He was certainly a deep one, and his case grew more puzzling as I studied it in relation to the rifle shot of the night before, his collision with Morgan in the wood, which I had witnessed, and now the house itself had been invaded by someone with his connivance. The shot through the refectory window might have been innocent enough, but these other matters in connection with it could hardly be brushed aside. Bates lighted me to the stairway, and said as I passed him, "'There's a baked ham for dinner. I should call it extra delicate, Mr. Glenarm. I suppose there's no change in the dinner hour, sir?' "'Certainly not,' I said with asperity, "'for I'm not a person to inaugurate a dinner hour one day and change it the next.' Bates wished to make conversation, the sure sign of a guilty conscience in a servant." and I was not disposed to encourage him. I closed the doors carefully and began a thorough examination of both the sitting room and the little bedchamber. 
I was quite sure that my own effects could not have attracted the two men who had taken advantage of my absence to visit my quarters. Bates had helped unpack my trunk and undoubtedly knew every item of my simple wardrobe. I threw open the doors of the three closets in the rooms and found them all in the good order established by Bates. He had carried my trunks and bags to a storeroom, so that everything I owned must have passed under his eye. My money even, the remnant of my fortune that I'd drawn from the New York bank, I had placed carelessly enough in the drawer of a chiffonier otherwise piled with collars. It took but a moment to satisfy myself that this had not been touched. And to be sure, a hammer was not necessary to open a drawer that had from its appearance never been locked. The game was deeper than I had imagined. I had scratched the crust without result, and my wits were busy with speculations as I changed my clothes, pausing frequently to examine the furniture, even the bricks on the hearth. One thing only I found, the slight scar of a hammerhead on the oak paneling that ran around the bedroom. The wood had been struck near the base and at the top of every panel, for though the mark was not perceptible on all, a test had evidently been made systematically. With this as a beginning, I found a moment later a spot of tallow under a heavy table in one corner. Evidently the furniture had been moved to permit of the closest scrutiny of the paneling. Even behind the bed I found the same impress of the hammerhead. The test had undoubtedly been thorough, for a pretty smart tap on oak is necessary to leave an impression. My visitors had undoubtedly been making soundings in search of a recess of some kind in the wall, and as they had failed of their purpose, they were likely, I assumed, to pursue their researches further. I pondered these things with a thoroughly awakened interest in life. Glenarm House really promised to prove exciting. I took from a drawer a small revolver, filled its chambers with cartridges, and thrust it into my hip pocket, whistling meanwhile Larry Donovan's favorite air, The Marche Funebre d'une Marionette. My heart went out to Larry as I sent that adventure, and I wished him with me, but speculations as to Larry's whereabouts were always profitless, and quite likely he was in jail somewhere. The ham of whose excellence Bate had hinted was no disappointment. There is, I've always held, nothing better in this world than a baked ham, and the specimen Bates placed before me was a delight to the eye. So adorned was it with spices, so crisply brown its outer coat, and a taste, that first tentative taste, before the sauce was added, was like a dream of Lucillus come true. I could forgive a good deal in a cook with that touch, anything short of arson and assassination. Bates, I said, as he stood forth where I could see him. You cook amazingly well. Where did you learn the business? Your grandfather grew very captious, Mr. Glenarm. I had to learn to satisfy him, and I believe I did it, sir, if you'll pardon the conceit. He didn't die of gout, did he? I can readily imagine it. No, Mr. Glenarm, it was his heart. He had his warning of it. Ah, yes, to be sure. The heart or the stomach. One may as well fail the other. I believe I prefer to keep my digestion going as long as possible. Those grilled sweet potatoes again, if you please, Bates. The game that he and I were playing appealed to me strongly. It was altogether worthwhile. And as I ate guava jelly with cheese and toasted crackers, and then lighted one of my own cigars over a cup of Bates' unfailing coffee, my spirit was livelier than at any time since a certain evening on which Larry and I had escaped from Tangier with our lives and the curses of the police. 
It is a melancholy commentary on life that contentment comes more easily through the stomach than along any other avenue. In the great library, with its rich store of books and its eternal candles, I sprawled upon a divan before the fire and smoked and indulged in pleasant speculations. The day had offered much material for fireside reflection, and I reviewed its history calmly. There was, however, one incident that I found unpleasant in the retrospect. I had been guilty of most unchivalrous conduct toward one of the girls of St. Agatha's. It had certainly been unbecoming in me to sit on the wall, however unwillingly, and listen to the words, few though they were, that passed between her and the chaplain. I forgot the shot through the window. I forgot Bates and the interest my room possessed for him and his unknown accomplice. But the sudden distrust and contempt I had awakened in the girl by my clownish behavior annoyed me increasingly. I rose presently, found my cap in a closet under the stairs, and went out into the moon-flooded wood toward the lake. The tango was not so great when you knew the way, and there was indeed, as I had found, the faint suggestion of a path. The moon glorified a broad highway across the water. The air was sharp and still. The houses in the summer colony were vaguely defined, but the sight of them gave me no cheer. The tilt of her tam o'shanter as she paddled away into the sunset had conveyed an impression of spirit and dignity that I could not adjust to any imaginable expiation. Those reflections carried me to the borders of St. Agatha's, and I followed the wall to the gate, climbed up, and sat down in the shadow of the pillar farthest from the lake. Lights shone scatteringly in the buildings of St. Agatha's, but the place was wholly silent. I drew out a cigarette and was about to light it when I heard a sound as if a tread on stone. There was, I knew, no stone pavement at hand. But peering toward the lake, I saw a man walking boldly along the top of the wall toward me. The moonlight threw his figure into clear relief. Several times he paused, bent down, and rapped upon the wall with an object he carried in his hand. Only a few hours before I had heard a similar sound rising from the wainscoting of my own room in Glenarm House. Evidently the stone wall, too, was under suspicion. Tap, tap, tap. The man with the hammer was examining the farther side of the gate, and very likely he would carry his investigations beyond it. I drew up my legs and crouched in the shadow of the pillar, revolver in hand. I was not anxious for an encounter. I much preferred to wait for a disclosure of the purpose that lay behind this mysterious tapping upon the walls of my grandfather's estate. But the matter was taken out of my own hands before I had a chance to debate it. The man dropped to the ground, sounded the stone base under the gate, likewise the pillars, evidently without results, struck a spiteful crack upon the iron bars, then stood up abruptly and looked me straight in the eyes. It was Morgan, the caretaker of the summer colony. "'Good evening, Mr. Morgan,' I said, setting the revolver in my hand. There was no doubt about his surprise. He fell back, staring at me hard, and instinctively drawing the hammer over his shoulder as though to fling it at me. "'Just stay where you are a moment, Morgan,' I said, pleasantly, and dropped to a sitting position on the wall for a greater ease in talking to him. He stood sullenly, the hammer dangling at arm's length, while my revolver covered his head. "'Now, if you please, I'd like to know what you mean by prowling about here and rummaging my house.' "'Oh, it is you, Mr. Glenarm. Well, you certainly gave me a bad scare.' His air was one of relief, and his teeth showed pleasantly through his beard. 
It certainly is. But you haven't answered my question. What were you doing in my house today? He smiled again, shaking his head. You're really fooling, Mr. Glenarm. I wasn't in your house today. I've never been in it. I was never in it in my life. His white teeth gleamed in his light beard. His hat was pushed back from his forehead so that I saw his eyes, and he wore unmistakably the air of a man whose conscience is perfectly clear. I was confident that he lied, but without appealing to Bates, I was not prepared to prove it. But you can't deny that you're on my grounds now, can you? I had dropped the revolver to my knee, but I raised it again. Certainly not, Mr. Glenarm. If you'll allow me to explain. That's precisely what I want you to do. Well, it may seem strange, he laughed, and I felt the least bit foolish to be pointing a pistol at the head of a fellow of so amiable a spirit. Hurry, I commanded. Well, as I was saying, it may seem strange, but I was just examining the wall to determine the character of the work. One of the cottagers on the lake left me with the job of building a fence on his place, and I've been expecting to come over to look at this all fall. You see, Mr. Glenarm, your honored grandfather was a master in such matters, as you may know, and I didn't see any harm in getting the benefit, to put it so, of his experience. I laughed. He had denied having entered the house with so much assurance that I'd been prepared for some really plausible explanation of his interest at the wall. Morgan? You said it was Morgan, didn't you? You are undoubtedly a scoundrel of the first water. I made the remark with pleasure. Men have been killed for saying less, he said, and for doing less than firing through windows at a man's head. It wasn't friendly of you. I don't see why you center all your suspicions on me. You exaggerate my importance, Mr. Glenarm. I'm only the man of all work at a summer resort. I wouldn't believe you, Morgan, if you swore on a stack of Bibles as high as this wall. Thanks, he said mockingly. Like a flash, he swung the hammer over his head and drove it at me, and at the same moment I fired. The hammerhead struck the pillar near the outer edge in such a manner that the handle flew round and smote me smartly in the face. By the time I reached the ground, the man was already running rapidly through the park, darting in and out among the trees, and I made after him at hot speed. The hammer handle had struck slantingly across my forehead. My head ached from the blow. I abused myself roundly for managing the encounter so stupidly, and in my rage fired twice with no aim whatever after the flying figure of the caretaker. He clearly had the advantage of familiarity with the woods, striking off boldly into the heart of it, and quickly widening the distance between us. But I kept on, even after I ceased to hear him threshing through the undergrowth, and came out presently at the margin of the lake about fifty feet from the boathouse. I waited in the shadow for some time, expecting to see the fellow again, but he did not appear. I found the wall with difficulty and followed it back to the gate. It would be just as well, I thought, to possess myself of the hammer, and I dropped down on the St. Agatha side of the wall and groped about among the leaves until I found it. Then I walked home, went into the library, alight with its many candles just as I had left it, and sat down before the fire to meditate. I had been absent from the house only forty-five minutes. Chapter 8 A String of Gold Beads A moment later Bates entered with a fresh supply of wood. I watched him narrowly for some sign of perturbation, but he was not to be caught off guard. Possibly he had not heard the shots in the wood. At any rate, he tended the fire with his usual gravity, and after brushing the hearth, paused respectfully. 
Is there anything further, sir? I believe not, Bates. Oh, here's a hammer I picked up out on the grounds a bit ago. I wish you'd see if it belongs to the house. He examined the implement with care and shook his head. It doesn't belong here, I think, sir. But we sometimes find tools left by the carpenters that worked on the house. Shall I put this in the tool chest? Never mind. I need such a thing now and then, and I'll keep it handy. Very good, Mr. Glenarm. It's a bit sharper out tonight, but we're likely to have sudden changes at this season. I dare say. We were not getting anywhere. The fellow was certainly an incomparable actor. You must find it pretty lonely here, Bates. Don't hesitate to go to the village when you like. Uh, thank you, Mr. Glenarm, but I'm not much for idling. I keep a few books by me for the evenings. Annandale is not what you would exactly call a diverting village. Now, I fancy not, but the caretaker over at the summer resort has an even lonelier time, I suppose. That's what I'd call a pretty cheerless job, watching summer cottages in the winter. That's Morgan, sir. I meet him occasionally when I go to the village. A very worthy person, I should call him, on slight acquaintance. Uh, no doubt of it, Bates. Any time through the winter you want to have him in for a social glass, it's all right with me. He met my gaze without flinching, and lighted me to the stair with an established ceremony. I voted him an interesting knave, and really admired the cool way in which he carried off difficult situations. I had no intention of being killed, and now that I had due warning of danger, I resolved to protect myself from foes without and within. Both Bates and Morgan, the caretaker, were liars of high attainment. Morgan was, moreover, a cheerful scoundrel, and experience taught me long ago that a knave with humor is doubly dangerous. Before going to bed, I wrote a long letter to Larry Donovan, giving him a full account of my arrival at Gunarm House. The thought of Larry always cheered me, and as the pages slipped from my pen, I could feel his sympathy and hear him chuckling over the lively beginning of my year at Glenarm. The idea of being fired upon by an unseen foe would, I knew, give Larry a real lift of the spirit. The next morning I walked into the village, mailed my letter, visited the railway station with true rustic instinct, and watched the cutting out of a freight car for Annandale with a pleasure I had not before taken in that proceeding. The villagers stared at me blankly, as on my first visit. A group of idle laborers stopped talking to watch me, and when I was a few yards past them, they laughed at a remark by one of the number, which I could not overhear. But I am not a particularly sensitive person. I didn't care what my Hoosier neighbors said of me. All I asked was that they should refrain from shooting at the back of my head through the windows of my own house. On this day I really began to work. I mapped out a course of reading, set up a draftsman's table I found put away in a closet, and convinced myself that I was beginning a year of devotion to architecture. Such was, I felt, the only honest course I should work every day from eight until one, and my leisure I should give to recreation and a search for the motives that lay behind the crafts and assaults of my enemies. When I plunged into the wood in the middle of the afternoon, it was with the definite purpose of returning to the upper end of the lake for an interview with Morgan, who had, so Bates informed me, a small house back of the cottages. I took the canoe I had chosen for my own use from the boathouse and paddled up the lake. The air was still warm, but the wind that blew out of the south tasted of rain. I scanned the water and the borders of the lake for signs of life. More particularly, I may as well admit, 
for a certain maroon-colored canoe and a girl in a red tam-o'-shanter. But lake and summer cottages were mine alone. I landed and began at once my search for Morgan. There were many paths through the woods back of the cottages, and I followed several futilely before I at last found a small house snugly bit away in the thicket of young maples. The man I was looking for came to the door quickly in response to my knock. "'Good afternoon, Morgan.' "'Good afternoon, Mr. Glenarm,' he said, taking the pipe from his mouth the better to grin at me. He showed no sign of surprise, and I was nettled by his cool reception. There was, perhaps, a certain element of recklessness in my visit to the house of a man who had shown so singular an interest in my affairs, and his cool greeting vexed me. "'Morgan,' I began. "'Won't you come in and rest yourself, Mr. Glenarm?' he interrupted. "'I reckon you're tired from your trip over—' "'Thank you, no,' I snapped. "'Suit yourself, Mr. Glenarm.' He seemed to like my name and gave it a disagreeable, drawling emphasis. "'Morgan, you're an infernal blackguard. You've tried twice to kill me.' "'Well, call it that, if you like.' And he grinned. "'But you'd better cut off one for this.' He lifted the gray fedora hat from his head and poked his finger through a hole in the top. "'You're a pretty fair shot, Mr. Glenarm. "'The fact about me is,' and he winked, "'the honest truth is, I'm all out of practice.' "'Why, sir, when I saw you paddling out on the lake this afternoon, "'I sighted you from the casino half a dozen times with my gun, "'but I was afraid to risk it.' "'He seemed to be shaken with inner mirth. "'If I'd missed, I wasn't sure you'd be scared to death.' For a novel diversion, I hardly recommend a meeting with an assassin who has, only a few days or hours before, tried to murder you. I know of nothing in the way of social adventure that's quite equal to it. Morgan was a fellow of intelligence, and, whatever lay back of his designs against me, he was clearly a foe to reckon with. He stood in the doorway, calmly waiting my next move. I struck a match on the box and lighted a cigarette. Morgan! I hope you understand that I'm not responsible for any injury my grandfather may have inflicted on you. I hadn't seen him for several years before he died. I was never a gun arm before in my life, so it's a little rough for you to visit your displeasure on me. He smiled tolerantly as I spoke. I knew, and he knew that I did, that no ill feeling against my grandfather lay back of his interest in my affairs. You're not quite the man your grandfather was, Mr. Glenarm. You'll excuse my bluntness but I take it that you're a frank man. He was a very keen person, and, I'm afraid, he chuckled with evident satisfaction to himself, <laughs> I'm really afraid, Mr. Glenarm, that you are not. Well, there you have it, Morgan. I fully agree with you. I'm as dull as an oyster. That's the reason I've called on you for enlightenment. Consider that I'm here under a flag of truce, and let's see if we can come to an agreement. No, it's too late, Mr. Glenarm. "'Too late. There's a time when we might have done some business, but that's past. "'You seem like a pretty decent fellow, too, and I'm sorry I didn't see you sooner. "'But better luck next time.' "'He stroked his yellow beard reflectively and shook his head a little sadly. "'He was not a bad-looking fellow, and he expressed himself well enough with a broad Western accent. "'Well,' I said, seeing that I should only make myself ridiculous by trying to learn anything from him, I hope our little spats through windows and on walls won't interfere with our pleasant social relations. And I don't hesitate to tell you. I was exerting myself to keep down my anger. 
that if I catch you on my grounds again, I'll fill you with lead and sink you in the lake. Thank you, sir, he said, with so perfect an imitation of Bates's voice and manner that I smiled in spite of myself. And now, if you'll promise not to fire into my back, I'll wish you a good day. Otherwise... He snatched off his hat and bowed profoundly. "'It'll suit me much better to continue handling the case on your grounds,' he said, as though he referred to a business matter. "'Killing a man on your own property requires some explaining. You may have noticed it?' "'Yes, I commit most of my murders away from home,' I said. "'I formed the habit early in life. "'Good day, Morgan.' As I turned away, he closed his door with a slam, a delicate way of assuring me that he was acting in good faith and not preparing to puncture my back with a rifle ball. I regained the leg shore, feeling no great discouragement over the lean results of my interview, but rather a fresh zest for the game, whatever the game might be. Morgan was not an enemy to trifle with. He was, on the other hand, a clever and daring foe, and the promptness with which he began more on me the night of my arrival at Glenarm House indicated that there was method in his hostility. The sun was going his ruddy way beyond St. Agatha as, as I drove my canoe into a little cove near which the girl and the tam o'shanter had disappeared the day before. The shore was high here, and at the crest was a long curved bench of stone reached by half a dozen steps, from which one might enjoy a wide view of the country, both across the lake and directly inland. The bench was a pretty bit of work, boldly reminiscential of Alma Tadema, and as clearly the creation of John Marshall Glenarm as though his name had been carved upon it. It was assuredly a spot for a pipe and a mood, and as the shadows crept through the wood before me and the water, stirred by the rising wind, began to beat below, I invoked the one and yielded to the other. Something in the withered grass at my feet caught my eye. I bent and picked up a string of gold beads dropped there, no doubt, by some girl from the school or a careless member of the summer colony. I counted the separate beads. They were round, and there were fifty of them. The proper length for one turn about a girl's throat, perhaps, not more than that. I lifted my eyes and looked off toward St. Agatha's. Child of the red tam o'shanter, I'm very sorry I was rude to you yesterday, for I liked your steady stroke with the paddle, and I admired even more the way you spurned me when you saw that among all the cads in the world I am number one in Class A. And these golden bubbles, O girl of the red tam o'shanter, if they are not yours you shall help me find the owner, for we are neighbors, you and I, and there must be peace between our houses. With this foolishness I arose, thrust the beads into my pocket, and paddled home in the waning glory of the sunset. That night, as I was going quite late to bed, "'bearing a candle to light me through the dark hall to my room. "'I heard a curious sound, "'as of someone walking stealthily through the house. "'At first I thought Bates was still abroad, "'but I waited, listening for several minutes, "'without being able to mark the exact direction of the sound "'or to identify it with him. "'I went on to the door of my room, "'and still a muffled step seemed to follow me. First it had come from below. "'Then it was much like someone going up the stairs.' But where? In my own room I still heard steps, light, slow, but distinct. Again there was a stumble and a hurried recovery. Ghosts, I reflected. Do not fall downstairs. The sound died away, 
seemingly in some remote part of the house, and though I prowled about for an hour, it did not recur that night. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 9, The Girl and the Rabbit. We have received some recent reviews, and I wanted to share them with you. This one, great stories. Excellent storytelling and a great selection, particularly Haggard and Conan Doyle. Would give this show five stars if advertising was kept to the beginning or end, as the sudden, loud ads really spoiled the experience. Down from Sore Garden, Apple Podcast, Norway. Thank you for the review, Sore Garden. All I can tell you is that we provide many hours of entertainment every week, free. And we do list quite a large number of ad-free podcasts to our Patreon supporters who support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And this one, entertaining and educational. Five stars. Reading the classics can be hard with their beautiful vocabulary, but when it is read aloud, it is easily understood. I love diving into classics that I've never read before. It's enjoyable and entertaining. Though from Zilla Warrior 360, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one from North London Listener. Five star. Thank you so much for bringing these wonderful stories to my kitchen in lockdown London. They brightened up my day, and I really look forward to the next episode. Down from North London fan, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, love it, five stars. Such interesting classic stories. I can't wait for my road trip this weekend so I can listen all the way. Down from Dude, Where's My Car, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, enjoying, five stars. Excellent listening material with superb delivery. Thank you for the effort. Down from Ray Harper of Albany, Louisiana. Uneven Tree Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great, five stars. I never miss an episode. Down from Fan OD 1001, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to send these reviews. They were appreciated, and they help new podcast listeners find our show. So thank you so much for helping us. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern to continue our story. The House of a Thousand Candles. I'm enjoying it very much and hope you are as well.